Uh, welcome to Element, if you are new. Uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. If you lost one, you can take another one. It's okay. If you happen to use it out in the rain, because we did get some rain, and it happened to suck up the water and went from this big to this big, you can have another one. It's okay, because they're not the greatest Bibles in the world. We should use them as sponges is what we should do, because they really just suck up the water. Um, there are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. Uh, we are back to full sheets now, and if you would like to grab one of those, this goes along with the message. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and Then Events, and Uversion will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes along with today's message. It, hopefully not the feedback as well, but everything else with it. Why don't you stand with me for the read of God's Word? That's my last one, I promise. Uh, This is Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. This is out of the New International Version. And it says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. So it's a very happy book. Uh, Let's pray. (laughs) Father, thank you so much for being a gracious God who has loved us and spoken into our existence. And I ask that we would be those who would be able to see what is meaningless and, and what is true, and that we would have a proper view and vision of what you call us to in our lives, that we'd be able to begin to walk through in ways that we see your glory and everything around us, and that would cause us to live in a ceaseless joy of who you are, that would change everything about us because of your goodness. Amen. Have a seat. So we are starting this new series today. I've been thinking, praying, talking about doing this for a really long time. I just didn't know when to do it or, or really how to do it, and that's the book of Ecclesiastes. When I finally decided to do the book, I was like, well, I'm going to do it in 2020. It'll be a new decade, everything will be new, and you got this crazy book. That'd be a great segue. This year I was going to do like the book of James or the second half of the book of Acts, which I keep promising you I'm going to get to because we did the first half like five years ago. I'm going to do the second half sometime, I I promise. Uh, But all that ended up being meaningless. Ecclesiastes joke for you. Uh, Because I figure if I want to cover the book, why not just cover the book and and talk about it? So here we are. I taught the Ecclesiastes probably about 10 years ago. Uh, I did a really poor job. I think I've read a lot more. I understand a little bit now. I'll still probably butcher some of the things, but this is what we're going to do. This is how it's going to work. We're going to cover Ecclesiastes in two phases, okay? Uh, We're going to do 33 messages, so 12 chapters, 33 messages. That's how Element rolls. Uh, Phase one is going to take us into June right up to Father's Day. And then during the summer, we're going to do this series called I Believe in Miracles. And you can sing the song, you sexy thing, right? So you can, all that you want to do. It's going to be all about the most beloved miracles in the Bible and the meaning of of what those look like. It's going to be fun. And summer tends to be hit and miss for a lot of people. It tends to be hit and miss for me. And so I figure if we, we break during the summer, it'd be nice to be able to come back then around Labor Day, and we'll start back into the book of Ecclesiastes so you can guys can get most of the book and what it's talking about and what's happening in there. That'll go right up into the book of December, and we'll finish the book. And I don't know why I tell you things like this, because in two weeks you're not going to remember that anyway, so whatever. Open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. It's right after the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. We're going to deal with this question kind of over the next few weeks that we start this is what kind of book is the book of Ecclesiastes? And I need you guys to kind of to pay attention with me over the next few weeks because we're going to cover some terms in the book of Ecclesiastes that I may not hit in as much detail later. And if there's somebody new who comes to Element during this time and they're going to hear me say something, they may not understand what that term is. And if they look at you and say, what does that mean? I want you to be able to answer it. So I need you to, to work with me here. And, and well, one of you said, okay, all right. So 
they're going to come and ask that one person what, what, what we're talking about. So Ecclesiastes uh, starts off as, as a total bummer. Again, I'm going to read this to you out of the NIV uh, for today. Next week will be in the ESV, but Ecclesiastes 1, 1, and 2. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So again, like a very happy book. You're probably wondering, where does this book even go after that? You might even think, when God is talking to people about putting certain writings into the scriptures, some people are like, yeah, that one, that's a pick-me-up. Let's, let's put with that in there. It's, it's, it's a little weird. You wonder if people in ancient times read this and they had a different perspective than we do, and maybe they were like, oh, it's such a great book, God. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Or were they like, I'm really depressed right now. That's a good book. Let's use that one. We'll put, we'll put that in the scriptures. Now, a lot of people have done a lot of damage to this book because they fail to understand how it's written or why it is written. And it has, Ecclesiastes has a completely unique approach to its conveyance of the truth of its message. Uh, last year over the summer, we did this series through Proverbs. We called it counterculture. And we showed how the scripture is trying to bring about a God-honoring culture that many times is counter to the culture in which we live in today. Well, Ecclesiastes is going to do that as well, but it does it in a very subversive way because it's going to go after what people hold most dear in their life. And if you come at some point during the course of this book as we go through it and you realize there is no firm ground in your life to stand on other than the person of Jesus, then you're right where the book wants you to be. The author is trying to take us to a place where we see that everything we seek to find our security in is meaningless. And so that phrase comes up over and over. It's almost like when he doesn't know what to say or what to put somewhere, he's like, meaningless. I'll throw that in there. That's perfect. We'll use that one there. So I'm going to cover four terms for you this morning. The first one is meaningless, right? Meaningless. In, in Hebrew, this is the word called havel, and it literally means a mist or a vapor. It's like breath. Some translations will say vanity. The ESV says vanity. The NIV says meaningless, but it's really like vapor. It's, it's like this. That's what he's talking about. If it works better. Yeah, that, that's what he's talking about. So when he talks about this, he's talking about in his culture like horses and labor and, and work and life. It's, it's all vapor, which for us would be like your 401K. That's, that's what he's talking about. It's like cars and boats and your concert tickets. And if you're in a NASCAR, right, your NASCAR tickets, uh, your intelligence, your understanding, your learning, your education, the paper you hang on the wall, all of that. He will talk about vineyards and trees and fruit and water and sun and wind and stars and skies and husbands and wives. And that's what he says it is. It's important to get this to know where the book is going. It's also like this. It's like, it's like your body that you spend all this time on working out, eating right, some of you. you know. He says at some point your body is going to droop and sag as you get older. <laughs> all of it ends up being meaningless. Uh, in Ecclesiastes 1.8 it says all things are wearisome more than one can say. There will be people that come after you in your life, and they, not, they will not remember all the wonderful things that you think that you did in your life. He even says that at some point, the person you say I do to, the person you pledge your life to, one of you will stand over the other person's grave, and you will realize it's meaningless. See, it's a very pick-me-up kind of book. I know you're really excited about it. The second phrase in the book is, is this phrase called under the sun, under the sun. It can also sometimes be said under the heavens, and that is a euphemism for the life that we live. It means in the totality, from when you were born to when you die, everything happens to you 
under the sun. Everything the author, the teacher, will talk about in the book of Ecclesiastes takes place under the sun. God himself does not speak in the book of Ecclesiastes. Only the teacher does. And everything he will talk about is going to be within the realm of the created, under the sun. It's this realm in which we create. That's which we devise or plot or scheme or run after. That bigger house, that nicer car, those obedient children that somebody somewhere must have. <laughs> it's, it's what we plant in our yards and that which you write in books or blogs and that's what we sing or we build or we construct, that which we arrange and organize our lives around. It's all in the realm of the created from the time you take your first breath to the time you take your last breath. It is under the sun. And when the writer uses the phrase, he's referring to that which exists in our time, that which is temporary. And to understand the book, you have to understand that term under the sun. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes is what is called wisdom literature. Solomon here is being a wisdom teacher. The Jews refer to their, to their scriptures as what's called the Tanakh. And that's simply an acronym for how they break up their scriptures. T in Tanakh is this word called Torah, and it's the first five books of Moses. The Jewish people, and we believe that there is a specific moment in human history that God comes, he reveals himself, he speaks to this people, these Israelites. This happens soon after they're freed from slavery. They're traveling in this place called the wilderness. And Moses goes up on this mountain, and he meets with God, and God talks to Moses, and Moses writes down all of these things. And the Jews came to believe that the first five books of Scripture, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are what God said and what God reveals himself to be, the Torah. The word Torah can translate as teachings or instructions or even more simply just the way. And they believe the Torah was so central that if you lost it, you would lose everything. The N in the Tanakh is this word called Nevi'im. And Nevi'im means the prophets, the historical and prophetical books. So Joshua, Judges, Isaiah, prophets divided into two parts. You had Former prophets, books of Joshua through Kings, and the later prophets, which is everything else, essentially, you know, the last, I don't know, 14 books of your Bible of the Old Testament. Uh, in Jewish liturgy, selections of the book of Nevi'im, called the Haftar, are actually written, uh, read every week in Jewish synagogues after they read the Torah. They do this on festivals and fast days as well. And then the last section, the Tanakh, the K, is this thing called the, the Ketuvim. The Ketuvim, and this is the writings. This is the wisdom literature. This is Psalms and Proverbs and Job and Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. These are called the wisdom literature. Now, I told you back in the, in the book of Proverbs that knowledge is the learning of facts and principles about reality and life, that we should be a people who are known by knowledge. Where knowledge, though, is listening and learning, wisdom is doing what you know to be true. And so what you have is in the Tanakh, you have the Torah, and then you have the Nevi'im, and these are the knowledge, the historical books, but then you have the Ketuvim, and these are the, the wisdom writings. How do we now live this out? What do we do? And this is where the book of Ecclesiastes comes in, in that section of wisdom literature. And this is the idea, when you look at this, you understand that knowledge comes fast, and that wisdom comes slow, and wisdom is birthed through life experience. And the first thing that wisdom will bring in our lives is humility and not arrogance. Humble people are wise because they probably made a bunch of mistakes, 
and that tends to make you humble. In the book of Ecclesiastes, you will see all the mistakes that Solomon made. And this is why it is now wisdom, because he's speaking about it. But this is also a problem with part of the wisdom literature when you get to Ecclesiastes, because people try to interpret Ecclesiastes like the rest of the wisdom literature. And you can't really do that. See, wisdom literature, it typically will show you and offer you two paths. There is the path of the wise person and the path of the foolish person. It shows you these two ways. The wise are careful with their words, and the foolish just talk and talk and talk and and talk. The wise look before the leap, and the foolish just leap. That's what they do. The wise are careful with their money, and fools just make it rain until it all disappears. That's what fools do. The wise are patient, fools rush in. And so when you look at wisdom literature, we typically understand wisdom literature as do the right thing, the wise thing, and you head in the right direction. You do the foolish thing, and you go in the other direction. But that's not the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, the teacher doesn't say, if you do A, B, you will get C, and if you don't, you're going to get X, Y, and Z. It's not wisdom literature like people expect. That's why so many people don't know what to do with the book. I actually heard one Bible commentator was asked a question about Ecclesiastes, and he couldn't answer the question, so his response was, well, Ecclesiastes just isn't an inspired book, because he couldn't answer the question. See, Ecclesiastes, what it is, it's for people who did the right thing. They did A, B, and C. They played by what they thought the rules were, and they got screwed anyway. That's Ecclesiastes. It's That's what it's trying to tell you. See, the book challenges our notions of all these simplistic categories that, because life is more complex than that. And the teacher is trying to move us to a place of brand new territories because too often we think these are the good guys and those are the bad guys. And then we start asking questions like, well, why did the bad guys prosper and the good guys went bankrupt? That's what Ecclesiastes is trying to take you to. The point moves us to the idea that there is no one righteous, no, not one. That's Ecclesiastes 7.20. The idea is that you can make a bunch of choices in your life and at some point you're going to run into a wall and that wall is going to flatten you. And at that point, what are you going to do? Are you going to look up and see this God who has loved you and chased you and called you to himself? Or are you going to continue to get up and try and run into that wall over and over and over? Ecclesiastes is trying to show you that even then when you're flat on your back because you smacked that wall, God is there even then. And so Ecclesiastes, it's, it's non-dual. It works in ways that are more mysterious and profound. He will tell you that the wise and the fool, they both are going to die. They both end up in the same place. Meaning, you can be morally superior to somebody else, especially in your own mind, and the idiot may in the end outlive you. That's what it's telling you. It, it is wisdom beyond wisdom. One writer says, says, we must tune our frequencies a bit different to hear what the teacher is telling us in Ecclesiastes. And so the book is kind of meant to disrupt us, to rub up against us in a way that makes us go, oh, what is that? The teacher is trying to create dissonance so we'd be uncomfortable enough to understand what is meaningless. The teacher's job isn't to affirm what you think and what you believe all the time. If that's all a teacher does, then why do you need a teacher? Like, if you come here and you expect me to always agree with everything you think and nothing I ever say is going to rub up against you and make you think differently, guys, just record yourself talking into an MP3 and listen to that all day long. You don't need me. Part of my job is to make you think. It's to push up against you, to make you think of where God's calling you to be. The teacher here wants to create enough space so we'd be open to the truth that we haven't sometimes grasped or seen everything. All right? So that is meaninglessness, Under the sun, and the third phrase then is, yet when I surveyed. 
at chapter 2, verse 11. Yet when I surveyed. It, it, this is something that comes over and over in the book. The teacher will say, I acquired all these things. I did all these things. Yet when I surveyed. What he's doing is he's facing this brutal self-honesty and examination of what life without God is truly like. And this is where we get our title for the series for Ecclesiastes. We're calling it the existential hangover. Uh, The word existential relates to existence. Philosophically, it's about human existence. And hangover is, you know what that is, okay? This is what it means. That that this existential hangover means Ecclesiastes questions everything that happens in our lives, and now it's now what? This is what happens. He says, I bought it all. I did it all. I built it all. I accomplished it all. I won it all. And this is the day after all those things happen. Now what do you do? Everything you had your heart and your mind set upon, you think you could ever accomplish, the teacher did it, and then he woke up the next day and says, now what? If you say, if I just had this or that or him or her or this, this thing, this is the day after you got it. The morning after you got everything you ever wanted. You ever have something you really, really want, and then you got it and realize it didn't live up to the hype? I need faster internet. Then you get faster internet, and it feels the same as your old internet. You're like, I don't know. I need a newer car. And you get that newer car, and you realize, I got a payment, and it's not as great as I thought it was going to be. I need that bigger house. And you realize, you got to clean that bigger house. I need a newer spouse. I love making fun of my friend Jonathan Whitaker. Okay, love him to death. Uh, Jonathan is one of the leaders of our Element Colorado uh, Church plant. For a lot of his life, Jonathan wanted a Dodge Viper. Okay, he he wanted one, and one day he finally bought one. And it's funny because about a week after he bought it, he realized he and his wife were having a third child that they didn't know was coming, because God has a sense of humor. Okay, so. <laughs> He gets this Viper, and he drives it home, and all the kids in the neighborhood are like, oh, wow, that's so cool. Would that cost you like a million dollars? And Jonathan's like, of course it did, because I'm awesome, right? So I called it a big clown shoe, because that's what it looks like. He brought it over to my house, uh, never let me drive it. I mean, would you? Seriously, right? So, but he let me enter into his most holy place. And when, when, and when I got into this car, the exhaust funnels up past the door, so it heats up the car inside like a sauna. And, and that, would, that would be bad enough. But then also on top of that, it's, it's this idea that you smell like exhaust when you get out. It, it's terrible. He thought it was awesome. I felt sick with the headache I got from the carbon monoxide. <laughs> he moves to Washington, D.C. Well, it is a little different. He doesn't drive it as much there. And then he gets stationed in England. And so he has to sell it before he moves. He lists it for a certain price to sell this thing, right? But nobody wants to pay that price because in his own mind, it's worth more than he thinks it is. And so he's trying to sell it, and he finally settles on this price with this guy, and, and, and he sells it. And I, he'll probably call me and talk to me about it this week because, hey, you're making fun of me. Stop it. Um, but I personally think he was thrilled the day he sold that thing because I think he wanted it, and when he got it, it wasn't what he thought it would be. This is the writer of Ecclesiastes. I always wanted a viper, and I got a viper. And you know what? I had to drive that thing around, and I smelled like exhaust all the time. My wife told me to take a shower every time I came home because it was always hot in the car, and I couldn't run down the windows to get enough air. And, uh, wah, wah. That's what it's telling you. Do you know that feeling? You ever grow up as a kid? I just want this thing for Christmas. I just got to have that. And maybe your parents were kind enough to get you that thing for Christmas. Two days later, it's broken on the floor because it didn't live up to what you thought it was going to be. Sometimes people are like this with marriage. Oh, man, if I could just get married, everything's going to be wonderful. It's going to be great. And then you get married. And you wake up the next day and you realize, this is a lot of work. 
Sometimes people are like, oh, man, if I just had kids, if I just had kids, everything would be so great. And then you have kids. And then a few years later, you're like, I got kids. <laughs> right? It may not be a viper, but maybe you walked out and said, now I got that. And now what? And now what? And this is what you find. The writer in Ecclesiastes had it all in the realm of the created, all in the realm of under the sun. He will establish this fact over and over and over. And then he will say, now let me tell you about that which is beyond the realm that we create. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and he will point out that even this existential hangover that we come to is also from the hand of God to help us to realize what is really true. Which leads us to the fourth and final thing I want to talk about, which is God, the most important thing in the book. The teacher in Ecclesiastes, when he talks about God, it is he who is uncreated. God has no beginning, no middle, no end. God is not trapped in time. With God, there is none of this. God is holy and true and solid and right. We live in this realm that is vapor. It is all about our stuff and our lives and our work and our relationships. And the teacher is trying to move us to the place of understanding who God is. That the creator has invaded this realm of the creator to give us purpose and meaning in our lives again. And that doesn't mean the creator is about giving us everything we ever wanted. It's about the creator showing people what we truly need and that is him. And so the book of Ecclesiastes keeps coming back to man's pursuit of life apart from who God is. And how whenever we do that, it always devolves into meaninglessness and man keeps trying to claim it has meaning. The teacher says, just stop with all the theatrics. Just be honest about what life really is. It's all vapor and you know it. You are not as smart as you think you are. You are not as smart as you want everyone else to think you are. You do not... You are not put together as much as you want everyone else to think you are put together. You're a hot mess. And that's okay. And that's okay. Because when you realize it, that's when God does his best work in us. Now, I once heard someone relate this idea of the picture of this to this picture right here. Uh, This is the Chilean mining disaster. This is is right after it happened. Uh, The guy, you you had these 69 miners, or these miners, they were trapped for 69 days. They didn't see the sun. They're probably wondering, will I ever see my family again? No rays of sunshine on their face. You're going to die in this hole. What's going to happen? This guy gets out. First thing he does, hugs his wife. Do you think at this moment the guy is wondering about his vacation time? Did I accrue a lot when I was down on that hole? How much... How much am I going to get? Is he thinking about that? Do you think he's wondering about his 401k or his place in the cosmos? No. At this moment, he is overwhelmed with the undeniable fact that life is this precious gift because he lives in this moment right now where he is. And if you read interviews of this moment, these guys get out and they pray and they're aware that life is a gift from God. It's meant to be appreciated and enjoyed. And this is what the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to lead us to. Because if we can understand this, then we can see what the teacher is saying is. And you can have a way to process all the vapor in your life. The teacher in Ecclesiastes will show in the book that most people spend their time in what one commentator calls vapor management. We're always trying to manage our vapor. Too many people want Jesus, religion, God, some guru to give us a way to manage our vapor. And we will say things like, I want a better marriage. If you can fix it, I'll follow you. I want a better job. You can give me one, I'll follow you. I want more finances. If you can teach me how to have better finances, and I'll follow you. We all want to manage the vapor in our lives in a way that we like it. 
because there is this assumption that if we can get the vapor, the meaninglessness under control and manage properly, that will lead to a place of peace and rest and calm and joy. But that will never happen because it's all just vapor. It's all just this. I mean, I need to put it back in the bottle. It's not going to happen because it's vapor. It's vapor. The beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus comes to rescue us from vapor management. See, he comes to wake us up and make us aware of the things that he has already given us as a people. So we don't have to waste all of our time searching and striving for what we've had the entire time. We have it so backwards in our lives. We're always chasing stuff and things, and it becomes such a misery. But when Jesus comes first, our understanding changes, and we can live true lives in him. Jesus wants to give us a metaphorical Chilean mining experience without sticking in the mine. One of the greatest sermons ever preached. Jesus says this, Matthew 6, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He could have really said, everything is meaningless apart from the kingdom of God. See, as a pastor watching lives, even my own, people typically come to the realization that life is beyond them in one of two ways. The first way is their lives crash. Like somehow life gets taken from them like the Chilean mining experience. You lose something and all of a sudden you have this crashing reality of how precious life actually is. It's like my friend Trevor Carpenter. He died of cancer a couple years ago. But what he said after he got cancer was, I don't want to waste my cancer. I don't want to waste my cancer. He wanted to teach him and others something. If you go to our blog this week, uh, we, we have a message that he did when he got out of the hospital the first time. And he gave a message saying that Jesus is our healer. And he talks about this. And so on our blog this week, if you want to watch that, uh, you can watch that. But for many people, it takes losing almost everything to realize what God has already given us. The second way that people come to a place in their life where they have the realization that life is beyond us is sometimes people get to a place where they have everything they thought they ever wanted. And yet they are still empty. They search because they got everything. They won. They're like Solomon. It's the existential hangover. They, they got the Dodge Viper. And it's like, now what? They're Ricky Bobby in his big house with a smoking hot wife and wads of cash. It's like, now what? See, the teacher says with great authority, I know that feeling because I was Ricky Bobby. I got it all. And the morning after, I realized it's all just vapor. That's all that it is. These conclusions, circumstances in our lives are gifts from God because it's meant to show us the meaninglessness of the temporary. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. When Jesus says that, it's not seek first, you better get moving, do, do, do. It's set your heart in understanding that your life is grace from God's hand. It's meant to be lived in humility of his rescue of us. And when we understand his work for us and in us, we'll be able to properly understand and look at the vapor that is around us and enjoy life that is a gift from him because it's focused on him and not upon our vapor. And in this, we then get to become the kind of people who can actually live out grace-filled lives in this world. We can be aware of the things that are going on around us. We get to have compassion for others. And we don't have to get so frustrated when people drive us nuts because we realize that they're doing everything in their lives to try and manage their vapor. And we can just be like, oh, man, I understand that. They're trying to manage their vapor. And that gives us compassion because we can then step into their lives and talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that which is true, that our God has stepped into the realm of the created to rescue and redeem and save us. That things don't save us. Things don't fulfill us. People don't save us. People don't fulfill us. Only Jesus saves us. 
And if we call ourselves believers in Jesus, we should be the most appreciative of life on this planet. This is why the scriptures say, your joy should be full. Your joy should be full. Because our God has sought to redeem us from our empty way of life that has been focused upon our vapor. And when we stop using vapor to get our satisfaction from, we can find that true fulfillment in life comes from the hand of our God. And that's what Ecclesiastes wants to teach us. It's a book that brings about grace. It points to the gospel of God's rescuing of us from the meaninglessness of our lives. And Ecclesiastes is going to ask a whole lot of questions that the rest of the scriptures are going to answer. Because it's going to say, meaninglessness under the sun. And then we will see that God's answer came in the person of Jesus to rescue us from the meaninglessness of our lives. The book is meant to create this dissonance. So we look for God's rescue and salvation that has come in the person of Christ. It's a beautiful book, and I hope you stick with us through it. Hope the very last week you go back and listen to this very first message, because you'll be like, oh, now it sort of makes sense. And you'll come back to it at some point and figure this out. Because this is one of the reasons we talk about communion every week. Like you break that cracker like Christ's body broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me. It's where we get to understand that if we're chasing vapor in our lives, we no longer have to do that because the reality of the creator of this world has stepped into our existence to rescue and save us. All that separated us from God and one another is taking care of Jesus at the cross. His resurrection brings us new life, and we can live a life that is no longer meaningless because it's focused where it's supposed to be focused. The band's going to come up. As as they do, there's going to be some deacons in the back. And if you guys need prayer, if you're in a place today and you have all this vapor and you're trying to find ways to manage it, it's it's sprayed everywhere, you're trying to stick it back in the bottle, you're trying to figure it, it all out, they would love to pray with you. They would love to help bring you to a place where you understand that vapor isn't what rescues or saves us. That Jesus is what rescues and saves us. And too often our lives are so focused upon the meaninglessness of the vapor around us that we cease to see what God is doing in the midst of our lives. And so I would encourage you, if you need prayer, to go and pray with them. If you are somebody who is afraid to do that, but you're overwhelmed by the vapor in your life, I encourage you today, as you take communion, as you pray, as we go through the next couple songs, to take a couple moments and to have God reveal to you what is true and what is right, and that you would see how God has stepped into this realm to rescue us from the vapor, that he calls us to new life and new hope because he is good and gracious and holy and true, and he loves us more than we could ever imagine. God does not intend for our lives to be so caught up on our vapor. Our lives are meant to be caught up in him, and when they are caught up in him, we can appreciate everything that we have been given because it will cease to be vapor and we'll see it as gifts from God's hands. There's offering boxes next to every single door we give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's always a response to what God has done. And there's some food outside. Grab something to eat. Take some sermon notes. Meet with some people this week and kind of begin to talk through those things. What things in your life are vapor that you've been grasping onto, that you've been looking for your significance in? And how can we then encourage one another to find who we are truly just in the person of Christ? And who God is as God steps into the realm of the created to rescue us. And then how we can begin to see the things that God has given us as gifts and not things that control our lives and not things that we have to uh, strive after. But how we can simply trust who God is and what he has done 
because he is good. I think Ecclesiastes is going to be a lot of fun. I'm going to make fun of a whole lot of things in it, including myself. You're welcome. It'll be great. (laughs) Our God is good. Our God is good. Let's live in the goodness that he has brought. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would uh, teach us to be a people who trust in your goodness and the revelation of yourself and who you are. That we would be a people who are marked by the knowledge of the things that we have learned about you, but that we would then begin to live in true wisdom. That that wisdom would bring about a humbleness in us. Or we would trust the things that you have said. That we would follow the places that you lead us into. That we would move to a place in our lives where we see the temporary versus the eternal. And that we would understand your great rescue of us. And in rescuing us, we would then see the world differently around us. That we wouldn't take this great rescue and just focus upon ourselves, but we would begin to focus outward. And how you have brought us in. And how you have rescued us. And that would in turn make us live lives outside of these walls in ways that bring you great glory because we want to see everyone come to the realization of what is really true. Who is really true? And that is you. So teach us to live lives focused on your gracious goodness and not upon the vapor. But we could come to a place because we trust you that we could see all the things that you've given as gifts and use them accordingly. Not being ruled over by our vapor, but being ruled over by you as our great rescue and redeemer. Teach us to live out your goodness in this world so we live lives that are not meaningless, but have the ultimate meaning. Loving and worshiping and serving and following you in all things. And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen.